Amen. All right. While they receive the offering, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat you are sitting in. Genesis chapter 1 is really easy to find. It's on page... One, uh, re- real easy. So just kind of crack that open right there to the very beginning. Genesis 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, all Advent season long, we have been doing this work of taking something that we started in September, this thing that we call the path of flourishing, kind of wrestling with this question, I mean, how, how does Jesus, how does, a, how does a relationship with Jesus produce flourishing in our lives? And how does, how does flourishing in our lives produce a flourishing relationship with Jesus? And kind of how, how do we live in this this kind of sweet spot where our relationship with Jesus is the primary, most important thing in our life while it's driving everything else. Our loves are in the right order, right? Whether you realize it or not, you have an order to which you love things. There are certain things in this world that you love more than other things and you don't love anything equally, right? Uh, when When my wife and I first started dating, she had a dog named Jesse. And I, one, time, one time I asked her, man, hey, if she loved that dog so much, I asked her, I was like, so if, if Jesse and I were both hanging over a cliff and you could only save one of us, which one did you save? That was the wrong question to ask, friends. Shouldn't have asked it. She chose the dog, man. The dog. You have, an, you have an order. You have an order to the things you love. You, you have to choose one. There's, there's something that you love more than you love anything else. And when we love Christ more than we love anything else, all of the, our other loves begin to find their right order. Begin to find the right order. And so we, we walk through this thing that we call the path of flourishing. Saying, man, how do we, how do we find the place where we cherish and treasure Christ above all other things, right? And we talked about beholding Jesus. Kind of step one, we must fix our gaze on the source of all human flourishing. We behold Jesus. We follow Jesus. We emulate him with every area of our lives. Um, but then we become like Jesus. There's an inward there's an inward sanctification that God does in us, transforming us into his likeness. But then we must, we must walk in community, right? We, we, we develop and we grow a biblical community. We said, we've said this again and again and again here at Flourishing Grace. You cannot flourish alone. You cannot flourish alone. And so all through Advent, we've been kind of answering the question, how does Christmas create these things? How does Christmas lead to beholding? How does Christmas help us to follow? How does Christmas help us to become or invite us to become like Jesus? And so this morning I have the interesting task of saying, I mean, how does Christmas create community? Um, which is maybe the hardest question of them all, but actually I don't think it's that hard. It's, it's actually been obvious the entire time. And so if you've been around Flourishing Grace for a while, uh, you've probably heard some of the things that I'm going to talk about this morning, but they're so critical for us to kind of just be, be a, a, awakened to as followers of Jesus. The reality is this, you, you need relationships. In fact, you crave relationships. Whether you are awake to this reality in your life or not, it is absolutely true, and I'm going to show you this morning that it is true. Um, he, here's the reality. Every little girl, from the moment she can begin to dream, she begins to dream of a day where she will don the most beautiful dress that has ever been seen. And she'll walk into a room where where every single eye turns and is fixed on her. And she rounds the corner and standing at the end of the corner, standing at the end of the aisle, is the most handsome man who has ever lived. And he is 
strapping and dashing and he's dressed in the nines and there's never been anyone like him. And she'll walk towards him and they will be united. They'll create this special unique union where they will be inseparable from that moment on. Dad, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, that is the dream of your little girl. From the moment she can begin to dream, she begins to dream of kind of the ultimate human relationship where everything will be perfect and they will live happily ever after. The flip side of this analogy is also true, right? When we, when we punish those in our society, men and women who have done things that are wrong, right? Well, what do we do? We remove them from their relationships. We, we send them into prison, we say you can no longer have free access to your spouse. You can no longer have free access to your children. You can no longer have free access to your friends and family. We remove them from their relationships. That's the punishment that we've created. That's the punishment that we can think of, right? And even, even within the confines of this place called prison, if somebody does something wrong in prison, right? If they incite a riot in the cafeteria and they're throwing lunch trays and jumping guards, right? What do we do with them? We move them into solitary confinement. We remove them from even their lesser relationships. That's the worst punishment we can think of for this person is to remove them completely from relationships. And, and so in, in a healthy way, we're constantly dreaming and longing for better and better and better relationships. And in the most unhealthy way, like the, the thing that we can think of to do to somebody, right, is to, to remove them from relationships. Even our children, right, what do we do when they create problems? We send them to time out. We say, you can't, you can no longer play with your brother and sister. You can no longer hang out with us. You must be kind of quarantined to your room in this place where, man, you can't see mom and dad. That's painful for a kid. And we know it's painful and it works. Think about it for a moment. What, was the, what is the most joyful memory you have? The most meaningful, sweetest moment of your life? What was it? Something fun and awesome. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Give me one. What's that? Having your kids, for sure. Creating a relationship. What else? Come on, let me show. I can see you. What's that? Somebody's got to have something. Something fun. What's like the most fun memory you have? Your wedding day. Going whale watching with who? With your mother? Take, took your mother whale watching? She took you whale watching. That's amazing. Yes, whale watching. Something else like that. Going to Europe for the first time. Who'd you go with? Just by yourself, completely alone. You just ruined my analogy. I'm going to go with whale watching with mom. Um, yeah, I took my dad skydiving for his 70th birthday. It's amazing. Just like the memory, the look on his face is just burned into my mind. It's amazing. Like terror and joy all at the same time. Yeah, we do these things. But here, here's the reality. Whale watching is awesome. 
I want to go whale watching. That would be amazing. Like one of my dreams is like taking a little one of those kayaks out in Alaska and like these massive whales like jumping right in. But what makes it sweeter, what makes it better is that mom is there. And mom gets to see the look on her daughter's face. I get to see the look on my dad's face. Yes, skydiving is fun and skydiving is cool. But man, what makes it even better is being with my dad. Going to Europe is amazing, but going to Europe with somebody you love would be even better. Maybe you can take your wife. No, next time, Skip, come on. <laughs> 2020. We crave relationships. Relationships make everything better. And he, here's where I'm going with this. I believe that this is rooted. It's rooted in a deep theological truth. Every human being on the planet craves relationships. Every human being on the planet receives joy and delight and grat- um, gratitude from relationships. We're satisfied by them. The healthier our relationships, the better our lives. We know this. I believe this is rooted in a deep theological truth that our God is triune. He's three and yet he's one. If you will, look with me real quick at Genesis 1, verse 26. In Genesis 1, we know God is what? He's, he's creating the world. He's creating the heavens and the earth. He's created all these plants and animals, but he hasn't created any people yet. He, he is alone. He's, he's kind of there, the spirit's there hovering over the water, and we see this picture, but there's no people yet. And here's what God says in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let what? Us, plural, make man in our, plural, image after our, plural, likeness. Who is he talking to? He's alone. There's nobody else around. He hasn't created anybody else yet. Who's he talking to? You see, he's talking to himself. We know as we look at scripture that, there's, that there are more people present in that moment. Not, not human beings, but God himself is present. Right? We see a few verses earlier that the spirit is kind of hovering over the water. So the spirit of God is there. God the Father is there. And then when we look at John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the word. The word is Jesus. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And so as we look at scripture, we see there are three distinct persons there. But yet we know there's only one God, right? The ancient prayer of the nation of Israel, what what they would pray, every little boy and girl memorized this prayer and they said it multiple times a day. It's called the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. It was, this, was, this was driven into the heart and mind of every little boy and every little girl in Israel. It's crucial for us to understand there's only one singular God. There has never been more than one God. And there will never be more than one God. There's always only been one singular God. This, this was critical for God to help the people of Israel understand, I alone am God. There was no other God before me. There's no one like me and there never will be anybody like me. But at the same time, we see these different persons of the Trinity showing up. Most famously at the baptism of Christ, right? The baptism of Christ, Jesus is there. And we know that Jesus is God, right? And even Jesus says, man, the Father and I are one. When Jesus says that, you know he is throwing the Pharisees' minds back to the Shema. He's saying, in case you don't grasp this, we are one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and I am one with him. 
At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is there, fully God in every way. And we hear the voice of God the Father declare that this is his son with whom he is well pleased. And the spirit of God descend upon him like a dove, all present in that singular moment. And yet, we've known there's only one singular God. How can this possibly be? So, for over a thousand years, theologians came up with a term that would help us understand this, and that term is Trinity. It's not found in the Bible, right? This was created by the early church fathers to say, man, how do we help, how do we just kind of, how, how do we, I, I can't shorten this into like a sentence or a word, so they just created this word, this idea of Trinity, that our God is triune, that he's three persons, three distinct persons, and yet one singular substance, one God. The closest thing we have kind of in our understanding of this is like something like water, right? Water's always the same substance. H2O never changes. It's always the same. Yet it can exist in different forms. It can exist as a gas. It can exist as a liquid. It can exist as a solid. But the substance is always the same. And similarly, but not, not identically, God is the same way, always the same, never changing, one singular God, and yet always existing at the same time in three distinct forms, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see these three forms taking shape and doing things all throughout Scripture. And there in the beginning, God says, let us, plural, create man in our plural image, after our plural likeness. If you look at the very next verse, though, it gets even more fascinating. Verse 27, so God, singular, created man in his own singular image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural, you see, here's, here's what happens in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The image of God is impressed into, created within man and woman. It's created within you and me. We are formed and shaped and molded into his very image, into his very nature. And the nature of God is a fascinating thing. Have you ever wondered what God was doing in the eternity that existed before anything else existed. Like, what was he doing? Like, for all eternity, before there was anything else, before there was planets and stars and moons, before there was angels, before there was anything else that was created, what was he doing? I've heard people say, man, God created the world because he was bored. Friends, that's not true. The theologians of old created a word to describe what they believed God was doing in this eternity that existed before anything else existed. The word is parichoresis. Parichoresis, right? Um, Pari just means around. It's this Greek word, around. And choresis is to move, right? It's where we get our word choreography. Choresis. To move around. And what they meant by this was that um, in, in the eternity that existed before anything else existed, that God the Father was constantly lifting up and adoring and delighting in and perfectly loving the Son and the Spirit. While the Son and the Spirit were perfectly delighting in and perfectly adoring the Father. And while the Son was perfectly delighting and perfectly adoring, perfectly treasuring the Spirit and the Father. And this kind of movement, moving around each other, always lifting one another high, always glorifying glorifying one another in this perfect dance 
parichoresis, as C.S. Lewis calls it, this great dance, this great movement of persons, always perfectly loving, always perfectly delighting, and always perfectly adoring himself. Here's what it means, friends. Before there was carbon or oxygen, before there was plants and trees and moons and stars, before there were angels, before there were humans, before there was anything, anything that is, there was a relationship. At the core of who our God is, he is a relationship. He's a, he's a 24-7, 365, all eternity long party. Perfectly delighting, perfectly adoring, perfectly loving himself. And he created you in that image. He created you in the image of himself, in the image of a relationship. But not just you, us. If you look at the language of verse 27, right? He creates us individually, but together we are, we are plural. We, we crave, we need each other. We need other relationships in our lives. But you fast forward two chapters later in chapter three, right? We know what happens. It all, it all falls apart. Adam and Eve, who, who are invited into this perfect, beautiful relationship where they are adored and loved and treasured perfectly, and they are free to adore and love and treasure God perfectly, they, they choose themselves, right? God says, this is mine. Don't, don't touch this. This one tree in the middle of the garden, he says, this one's mine. Just so you understand, just so we understand that I'm still God and you're still my creation. This one is mine. And we know the story, right? Eve eats from the tree. She gives it to her husband. Her husband. They both eat from it. And in that moment, this beautiful relationship is broken and it's fractured. For the first time in the history of eternity, someone in this relationship chooses themselves. Never happened before. And that perfection was broken, and it could not be restored. It could not be restored. This is why every little girl, from the moment she can begin to dream, begins to dream of a day that's not real. That situation that I described earlier, where that she turns the aisle, and there's Prince Charming, and they live happily ever after. You know that's not real. It doesn't exist. From that moment on, relationships have cost us. We've had to work and work and work and work. And even, even doesn't matter how hard you work, it still, it still comes back to bite you. There's still going to be moments where she might love that man with all of her heart. There's still going to be moments when he lets her down. There's still a great chance that he walks out on her. There's still going to be moments where it doesn't matter how hard she tries, she's going to fail him. We can't do it perfectly anymore. It was broken and it was fractured in that moment, but the reality is we still need it. We still crave it. We still long for it. Even in our culture and our society right now, as you, as you kind of look around and you hear people crying out for freedom and you hear people crying out for equality, whether it's right or wrong, that is not my point this morning. There's something in us that craves relationships without cost. There's something in this to say, man, I just want everybody to just like me and agree with me and be on my team and be on my side and be for me. 
for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We've warred for that, and it has never come true, and nor will it ever come true. It doesn't matter how, f- how hard people in our society fight, there will still be injustice. There will still be people who treat people certain ways based on their gender, based on their race. It does not matter. And I'm not trying to remove hope from you. I think we should still fight for those things. But the reality is that at the core of who we are, we are relationally broken, Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, uh, who wrote much on this in his work, um, Reasons for God, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when Jesus says that in order to find yourself, in order to find true human flourishing, you have to lose yourself. All he's doing doing is telling you what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been doing for all eternity. When Jesus says, man, if you, if you want to find life, you have to give up your life. If you want to find true human flourishing, you have to give up true human flourishing. What he's describing is what the Father and the Son and the Spirit had been doing for all eternity. This parachoresis, this dance, this movement of saying, man, you are worthy. And I love you and I give you affection. I give you all of my delight and I give you, wrap all of my joy around you. And they say, no, 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 you are worthy. I give you all of my delight, all of my joy and I wrap my affection in you. No, 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 you, no, 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 you for all eternity. Just this this sweet, constant, just movement of grace and delight. You see, here's when community flourishes. Community flourishes. When you begin to place the flourishing of the community above your own flourishing. You say, my flourishing does not matter as much as the flourishing of my community. This is true in your marriage. You say, man, my marriage matters more than my own desires, my own wants, my own needs. This is true of your family with your kids. This is true of your deep friendships. Man, my friendships are going to flourish when I care about the flourishing of my friendships more than I care about my own flourishing. You want to find that joy. You want to find that life. You've got to lose your own. But here's the beauty of it. When your relationships flourish, so do you. That's how it works. Now, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Here's Christmas. Christmas is the God who has been wronged. Christmas is the God whom you have chosen to turn your back on. Christmas is the God who who you chose yourself over. You said, my flourishing is more important than our relationship. That's what Adam and Eve said. And whether you are awake to this reality or not, That's what you've said again and again and again and again and again. My flourishing is more important than our relationship. It's that God saying, our relationship is more important than my flourishing. You see, Christmas is God stepping out of that perfect relationship. What it means is that all Jesus ever knew, all he ever knew before he stepped into time and was born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough, all he ever knew was perfect delight and perfect joy and perfect happiness, perfect fulfillment, perfect worship, perfect glory, and he left it. He left it to invite you back into it, to invite you to the dance that you might once again come and commune with him. 
that your relationship with him might be restored to the full glory that it once was thousands and thousands of years ago. And that your relationships with each other might be restored as well as you begin to model and emulate the way that he shows you in, in, in Christmas, in the birth of Christ. We see this, look at, if you will, with, if you will with me in Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Paul writes about it in a unique way. He writes it this way. He says this, he says, let, let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Let each one of you not only look to his own flourishing, his own hopes, his own dreams, but to the flourishing of the hopes, the dreams of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For though he was in the form of God, he was God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This relationship trumps defies all other relationships. There's nothing like it. No one has ever loved you the way that God loves you through Christmas. What we are fixing our gaze on here at Flourishing Grace is this very idea that in just, just a couple days, this, this is what we're going to celebrate. This is what we're longing for. Oh, that he would come. Oh, that he would make us new. That he would restore our relationship with him. And that in doing so, he would restore our relationship with each other. So my encouragement to you this morning is that you would come and in freedom, that you would commune with him once again. Let's do this as we wrap up. Let's just bow our heads for a minute. I want to ask you something just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment, just in thought with me. Where in your life are there relationships that have been strained? Where in your life are there relationships that are rocky? Maybe there's a family member that has wronged you. Or maybe there's a family member that you've wronged. Maybe a friend that said something to you and maybe they didn't mean it to be that way but it was sure received that way maybe they did mean it to be that way and you just can't forgive them maybe it's a spouse a parent Somebody that you haven't talked to in a long time. Friends, I just want to remind you this morning that, that your God, the God of all things, chose your flourishing above his own. He's called you to do the same. 
to sacrifice your own life, to sacrifice your own flourishing, to die to yourself in order to pursue the flourishing of others. So maybe this morning you got to shoot a quick text or step out and make a phone call. There's something you need to make right. If you're going to walk into Christmas with a pure heart, a clean conscience, you got to do some work this morning. For those of us in this room, the truth is, the reality is that, man, our relationship with Jesus is the relationship that's strained. You've been pursuing your own flourishing, your own hopes, your own dreams, your own kingdom above His. Friends, the great length that our Savior went to to restore your relationship with Him you must be ready to do the same. Are you ready to give your life for him? To sacrifice all at the call of Christ? To come and commune? To find restoration? And to find flourishing in him? Jesus, we come before you this morning. I pray, I pray that you would convict us. That you would illuminate our hearts. That we might see we might see the areas where we've been withholding forgiveness and we might see the areas where and we have devalued our relationship with you and our relationship with others might we see that you've created us you've created us to, to be in relationships relationships that are more important to us than we are important to ourselves So help us to be sacrificial people. Put the flourishing of the community, the flourishing of the whole above our own flourishing. And help us to see how you've done that for us. That we might come and commune with you. Pray this in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen.